We're going to jump right in. This is, I would say, the heart of the Beatitudes. If, we, if there's, there's eight total, we are on number four today. So if this is your first time here, you haven't caught any of this series, that is totally fine. Uh, you know, it's, they, they do kind of build on each other, but this is, we're at the heart of the Beatitudes. And a little bit about it, you know, this is the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that's ever lived. And so this was Jesus, um, and he's sitting down on the mountainside, um, and he's teaching his disciples, and there's a crowd around him that's listening. And this is the beginning of what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And so it starts with these eight Beatitudes. And we've, we've, we've gleaned a lot from um, you know, each week just really diving into these Beatitudes, but the word you're going to see over and over every week is the word blessed. And it, really, it, it literally means happy. But not an outside happiness that we think of or like getting more stuff or meeting goals, but, it, but an inside happiness that I'm, I'm, I'm at peace. I'm happy on the inside. My outside conditions may not be conducive for happiness, but there's a peace inside of me. And so beatitude could almost stand for a beautiful attitude. It's a, it's a good way to live. It's, 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 um, you know, it, I think Jesus, what he's doing is he's injecting his own DNA and who he is in his followers. And so before anybody really listened to what Jesus had to say, they watched his life. They were drawn to him. If you, you, you probably, you'll notice that when you read the New Testament, everywhere he went, it was like a crowd was following him. And it wasn't because he was, like, turning water into wine. I mean, that, that's one reason why they might have been following him. And, 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 like, feeding folks in the desert and all this stuff, took a little boy's lunch and fed thousands. It was his character. People were drawn to who he was, especially non-Christians were drawn to him. And so he, fought, he sits down and he begins to, to just, you know, preach what is known as the greatest sermon ever told. I'm going to read, this is Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. So this is the number 4, right in the heart of the Beatitudes. And Jesus says, Blessed, happy are those on the inside who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now I'm going to read another translation. This is the English Standard Version, and I like the way that it's put here. Blessed are those, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Somebody say satisfied. They will be satisfied. Eugene Peterson, this is a paraphrased version. It's called The Message. He says it like this. You're blessed, you're happy, when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink, and he's the best meal that you'll ever eat. And so I, I really, I've been looking forward to this beatitude because if there's one thing that I can relate to, it's being hungry. Anybody, you know what I'm saying? Like, anybody in here like to eat? Come on now. Like, I mean, this is the South. One of our core values should be eating good food. Because, like, that, that's really how this all started. It wasn't so much, the, I think, the preaching and all that. You know, that's all good and the worship. We ate really good food every Thursday night. And, and it's kind of a, it's a core value of our church. When every, every time we celebrate one year, we have a great meal. And so a couple weeks ago, we had fried mullet and all the fixings, and it was a great time. I hope you're able to make it. But we like to eat around here. And I'm, I'm the kind of guy, I do, I get a little bit hangry. You know what that is? Hangry. Like when you get when you get hungry, you start you know you get in a bad mood, 
like you may, maybe like say some things you wish you wouldn't have said and and so i think i love that jesus uses this analogy here because we all can relate to being hungry and we all can relate to being thirsty it's something that every one of us in here has felt but again he, he so he's not talking about being hungry for bread or fish he's talking about a hunger that's that's deeper than that so these these beatitudes what i'm beginning to see is even though they have things that we can relate to, you know, from, a, from just a, a worldly standpoint, that's the way that he's rolling them out, they really have more to do with what's going on on the inside of us. The blessed that he's talking about is not houses and cars and jobs and money. The blessed that he's talking about is a soul that is satisfied, that's content. And each one of these he's unpacking for us is there's a spiritual underlying condition that he's talking about. And so he's, he's speaking to a crowd that is probably very hungry, most likely, but, he's not, but they're not satisfied. Have you ever been there before? I'm hungry, but I'm not satisfied. Like, I, I, I want to eat something. I, like, I know that I'm longing for something deep down inside, but I can't quite find what it is. I do this a couple times a week in the middle of the night. I'll just open the fridge and stare in there. Anybody else see that? I'm hungry, you know what I'm saying? Like, but I don't really know what I want to eat, you know? So I'm, I'm just looking around, and I don't know if I'm hungry or bored. It's probably more like bored. But he's talking to a group of people that are hungry, but they haven't found something that has satisfied them yet. I like the way the writer in the book of Psalms says it like this. God, you're my God. I, I can't get enough of you. I've worked up such a hunger and a thirst for God traveling across dry and weary deserts. A.W. Tozer, who's, who's an incredible preacher, he's one of the ancients that... He said it like this, to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. And so the, it almost doesn't make sense in a lot of ways because Jesus at one point would, would say, hey, if you, you know, drink the water I have for you, eat this food that I have for you, you're not going to hunger and thirst again. But still here he's saying it's good to be hungry spiritually. I think that's what I hear probably the most from people sitting down, having coffee, or just talking with someone, meeting them for the first time. When somebody's really, I don't know, honest, there's, there's always this longing in their heart for more of God. And, and, and a lot of times what we'll do is, is and, and, and you've probably seen this, or it may be why you're here, you feel like maybe I'm not getting what I need from the church I'm at, so I'll change churches. Or may, I'm, not, I'm not spiritually where I want to be, so maybe I, need to, maybe I need to increase my intake. And I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going I'm to you know, maybe listen to worship music just all the time. Maybe that'll, that'll help. Or, or, or maybe I need to fast. You know, maybe, you know, so, so we try to cure this, this, this hunger. But when I hear that as a, as a pastor, when somebody tells me, I just don't feel like spiritually where I'm supposed to be. I feel like I'm just... I, I, I need more of God in my life. To me, like, that's a really positive thing. It, it was the Pharisees who were, like, you know, beating on their chest saying, look how spiritual we are. We don't really need anything from God. We're perfect. We got it all together. We got beautiful buildings. We do everything right. Look, we pay our tithes. We help the poor. Like, they were bragging about how spiritual they were. But that's not where the blessing is, right? 
Jesus is saying, bless, you are blessed in this moment right now if you feel like that. And so the feeling, we don't like the feeling, but the desire it births in us is very healthy. And it goes all the way back to when we're, you know, first born. Like nobody had to teach us, if you're, nobody has to teach a baby to be hungry. And as soon as we, as we take this step into this new life and we say yes to Jesus, he, he says we're born again. Nicodemus didn't understand it. He was like, do I got to like literally like go back into my mother and be reborn? I don't understand this, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, 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 it's a, it's a spiritual rebirth. And so before we come to Christ, before we're spiritually born again, we could care less about spiritual things. Like, I didn't really care, right? It wasn't a part of our life. But, but as, at, when this new creature is, is birthed inside of us, we begin to hunger and thirst for God. And I think before that, our, our soul needs God. Like our body needs water and food. It would be great to sit down, right, and like have a meal and it lasts a few weeks, That'd be awesome. Doesn't work that way. Like we have to keep going back to what our, our bodies were created from, from the earth. So we go back to the earth to sustain our bodies. And so we keep eating and we keep drinking water. It's the way our, we're designed. Well, God made our soul that way. And so we, that's why we come to church every week. That's why you're here. Come on, somebody, right? That's, that's why we're here. We want to drink from the well of God. We want, we want to feed our soul. We want to feed our spirit. And so that's a few things, like if you've ever felt that way, like spiritually, man, I just, I just want more of God. I need more of God. That's a good place to be. Like we don't really grow when we're comfortable. An athlete will tell you that. We don't grow in our comfort zone at all. It's better to keep trying and failing new things than to just get comfortable. And so part of this process and growing in God is staying spiritually hungry and staying at a point where we know we need God. And so a few things about hunger. Hunger, number one, is a sign of need. And so if I feel like in my life that there's something spiritually that I'm missing or, man, I feel like I have this, this I don't know, I'm missing this part inside of me, it's, it's a good sign. It's a sign that there's something that we need to go to God for. And Jesus lived this in front of his disciples. They were constantly thinking about going to the grocery store and getting food. Like that's really what they, they were just thinking about feeding their bellies and, and keeping their stomachs filled. And in that day, that was a big deal. Like that took a lot to do. You know, in, in our modern society, people don't go, you know, very hungry for very long usually. But in the world, they do. But the disciples, it was kind of meal to meal. And so when Jesus would talk about spiritual hunger, they're thinking, all right, let's go down to the drive-thru and get something to eat. But Jesus said this in, in, in Matthew 4. He says, I, you know, man can't live on, on bread alone. But there's this type of food, there's this spiritual food that our souls need. And he said, it's every word that comes from the Father. And so he, is, he begins unveiling this way of living to them that they weren't used to. That, that it's okay to be dependent on the right things and for him it was it was a word from from his father and so so hunger is a sign of of need which is good the second thing is that hunger is a sign of life it's good if you're if you're living you you're you're eating kind of thing if you're living this desire is inside of you if you don't have the desire to eat and you don't have that that necessary function then something is 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 typically wrong Charles Spurgeon said it like this, to hunger after righteousness 
is a sign of spiritual life. Nobody who was spiritually dead ever, ever did this. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's because you're, you're spiritually alive. So it's a good thing. The third thing about hunger that I think is the most important is that hunger is a sign of health. Like usually when, if, you, if you're getting sick, if your body's getting sick, one of the first signs is you stop eating. There's this term that the medical field has coined not, you know, in the last couple of decades known as failure to thrive. And so if a baby is born and it doesn't have that desire to eat, there's, there's something happening. And uh, my mom used to always tell me this story. I was just a few days old and uh, when she brought me home and she noticed that I wasn't like eating the way I was supposed to eat. And that was like 1986, all right? So y'all, this is a long time ago. And, and, and she called the, 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 the hospital and told him what was going on. He's like, he's, he's like, he's sleeping. He's not very hungry. He's, I don't know what's going on. And, and she's told him a few key things and they were like, bring him to the hospital. And she told me when, when she pulled up, they were waiting out front and literally took, took me from her hands. And what had happened was I wasn't latching right. And so since that time, we now, like, now there's lactation coaches for infants because it's so critical when we're at that stage in life that we're getting the nutrients that we need. And so spiritually, the dynamic is exactly the same, that we want to stay hungry in our lives spiritually, that when we get comfortable and when we don't want to eat and when we don't want to go to God for what we need, that's when we get off the path. And I'm like 99% sure that everybody in here has a, has a hunger, but the real question is, what are we filling it with? That's the, that's the struggle of my life right now with my six-year-old. Our lives, my wife and I, my, my, Kate, my, my wife will cook this spread, I mean, delicious, it's awesome. And by the time Asa gets to the table, our son, he's had candy corn, an ice cream sandwich. He's hiding candy in his room now. Like, he, he, if he gets quiet and he's in his closet, he's got a stash of chocolate in there. And so by the time we get him to the table, he doesn't want to eat because he's filled up on stuff that's not good for him. So he has a desire, he's hungry, he's thirsty, but he wants Kool-Aid and Cheetos. You know what I mean? And, 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 and I think it, rather than you know, th this, this, this meal that Caitlin had been working on for him. And, and so spiritually, how does that translate to us? I think when I, when I was getting ready for this, I thought about a guy named Solomon. And he, I think he wrote a book that captures this so well, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a bit depressing. Uh, you know, so, so a little bit about Solomon. He was a, a mighty king. It said that kings and queens came from all over the world just to see his, his kingdom. It was incredible. And he's known as the wisest man that ever lived. But one of the things that he did in the book of, of Ecclesiastes, you'll see this, this term over and over and over. I denied myself nothing. He was, he was looking for meaning. Viktor Frankl wrote a book called that, Man's Search for Meaning. Incredible. I think it's a desire. It's something that every person has in here if we're a human being. We want to know why we're here. We want to be satisfied. We want to be at peace. And look at his search. He went through the book of Ecclesiastes. The first thing he thought would bring him satisfaction and meaning was, was education. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 18 and he said, but with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more that he found out, the more knowledge he had, the more grief that he had. Ecclesians 12, 
Ecclesiastes 12, I'm sorry, verse 12. Of, of making many books there is no end, and of much study wearies the body. And so I'm sure we've all been there or you've been there before. Well, if I, just, if I finish college, I'll be at peace. If I get my undergraduate, then I can finally rest. You know what I mean? Once I finish graduate school, it's going to be fine. They're going to just forgive all my debt. No, I'm just kidding. No, I don't know. So much, no I'm just kidding. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to, I'm going to reel it back in. All right. All right. No, anyway, so, so if I could just get this, you know what I mean, this degree, and, and then I'm going to, man, it's just, I'm just going to be at ease. I mean, everything is going to be great then. And Ecclesiastes, I mean, the book of, of, of Ecclesiastes shows us that Saul Solomon had it and it didn't happen. And then he tried to find it in his work. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 10. I, I denied myself nothing. I, refu I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor and for all my reward. And I went out and I bought more land and I bought more houses and I bought more cars. And he added it and added it and added it. I'm not going to read it all. But still at the end of the day he says I, I couldn't find anything that satisfied my soul. Then he started chasing after wealth. Ecclesiastes 5. Whoever loves money never has enough of it. Isn't that interesting? Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. How much is enough? Well, more than I got. <laughs> Let me just get a little bit more. If I can just hit that millionaire mark, and then, you be, and then a million, you hit the millionaire, if I can just get 10 million, if I can just get 20, like, like if we're chasing after money, he says you're chasing after an illusion. What benefit are there to the owners except to feast their eyes on them. He's talking about as goods increase and as we consume them, he, he, he just couldn't find anything that satisfied him. Fame, he tried that. The last thing he tried was wine and women. Drank a lot of wine, talked about it all through the book of Ecclesiastes. And then not only that, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. This is insane. He had 700 wives. Did y'all know that? Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Still couldn't figure out what would bring that, that, that peace in his life. I, I heard a story about a, a seminary student that asked his professor, why did Solomon have 700 wives? Like, can you give me an explanation for that? The professor said, I don't know, but maybe it was in the hopes that when he woke up, one of them would be happy. But uh, anyway, that, again, that's, that was a story. I didn't write that. that ain't, I was told that by somebody else. But he, he still, with a th 700 wives, 300 concubines, this is what he said at the end of the book, Ecclesiastes 12. The last and final word is this. He had everything. He had it all. Fear God. Do what he tells you. And that's it. <laughs> Come on, somebody. That's good, right? We can go home right there. And it wasn't just Solomon. This happened all over. This is, in, I mean, the very first mention of sin was trying to satisfy a godly desire in an ungodly way. Adam and Eve, the serpent came in and said, hey, if you eat this tree, you're going to be like God. And that's a good desire. We should be, we, we want to get better in our life. We want to be made like we, that's a good thing, but it was the way that they went about it. Solomon, I mean, we could go through different Bible characters in the story. Uh, song, some of the greatest songs that have ever been written captures this so well. The Rolling Stones have a song called, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And I've tried, and I've tried, come on. And I've tried, Bono, you too, he's almost a billionaire. And he still hasn't found what he's looking for, right? Like, I mean, he, he's still looking out there. 
I'm so glad the Bible speaks to this. I'm so glad that the Bible doesn't just leave it open-ended and say, okay, no, no, no. And I want you to catch this, and then we've just got a few more minutes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be blessed. That's not what he said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be happy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to hit, hit their goals and metrics in life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to scale their business and be bigger than the person across the street. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But Jesus says something very profound here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, what is that, righteousness? I've been going to church at least once a week for like 20 years now. At least once, sometimes a couple times. Been in some prayer meetings. I've never once heard anybody ask, pray for me, I want to be more righteous. I've never asked it, right? So a lot of times we kind of connect that word with self-righteousness. Or, but, but what is he saying here? That, that righteousness, that happiness is a result of seeking righteousness. If we hunger and thirst for this, this righteousness, whatever this is, we'll be satisfied. doesn't matter how much money we have or don't have, how many wives or don't, we have or don't have, how many cars, we, you know, whatever, right? Doesn't matter. He says, here's the key. This is the beatitude. This is right in the heart of, the, of, of these eight. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, I think he describes it a little bit a few verses after this. So Matthew 5, that's where we're at. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Right after he gives the eight beatitudes in verse 20, he gives an illustration about righteousness. And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, the pastors, the priests the, of that day. He says, unless your righteousness is more than what they have, you're in no way going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives examples. Now stay with me. I couldn't fit all this in your notes, but it's right there in Matthew 5 at the end of the chapter. He starts giving examples. The first thing he says is he talks about murder. You've heard it said it's, 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 you know, it's not good to hate your brother. I think we would all agree with that. Even an atheist would agree with that. It's not good to hate your brother. He's, but he goes another level. He says, I, it's not good to even harbor anger in your heart. Sticks and stones will break my bones, right? But words will never hurt me. Well, he kind of flipped that upside down. That if you harbor hate and you harbor this anger towards someone in your life, it does affect you. Now, the Pharisees could hate you very, very, I mean, they, they were mean. But they never stepped outside of the law because they wanted to keep face. He says your righteousness has got to be more than that. He talks about murder, hate in the heart. He talks about adultery. He's like, of course you know it's wrong to commit adultery. And then he takes it another level further. Now, this is a really hard saying. He says, if you lust after someone in your heart, invisible, nobody knows what's going on. He says, you've committed adultery. Now, that's taking it to a whole other level there, right? Like, that, that's, that's really, really hard. Oaths. He's like, go get all the lawyers you want. You can sign, I mean, a thousand-page document, you know, hire you five or ten lawyers. But he settles it down. To, he says, your yes should be yes, and your no should be no. That's all it should take. Your word is your bond. Who can live like that? He's making it really hard. He talks about retaliation. That's a really hard one. 
Somebody cuts you off, you don't tell them they're number one out the window. You know what I'm saying? You know, no, you, 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 you know, you don't, <laughs> uh, you know, you, so somebody, somebody, he says, if somebody smacks you, turn the other cheek. What? If somebody sues you for your shirt, go to court and give them your coat as well. So the Pharisees are losing their mind because like, they're like, Jesus, this isn't in the law. It's okay. We can sue people. We can retaliate. It's in the Old Testament, right? It's, it's, it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He's making this really enemies. You got any enemies? He says, pray for them. Not pray on them, right? You know, but, but, but pray for them. I mean, this is incredibly hard stuff. Giving to the poor, prayer. Okay, I'm going to end with those two. The Pharisees would do all of their alms out in the public so people could see them. So they, they, they wanted to beat their chest when they were giving to the poor. When they would pray, they would pray on the street corners so that everybody could see them praying. And Jesus said, well, there's your reward. If you want to be rewarded by your heavenly father, go in your prayer closet, pray in secret. This is all brand new to them. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's setting the bar really high. And I think if I could define righteousness, I think it's as simple as, what does it mean to seek righteousness in our life? Because we're promised a blessing if we do it. We're promised peace that we can be satisfied and stop searching if we can make this our desire. It's, it's to be able to be in right standing with God. I think that's number one. Right standing with God. That I know that there's going to come a day when, I, when my soul is going to leave this body and this body's going to stay here and I'm going to stand before my creator and I'm going to give an account for everything I've done. The words that I've said, the thoughts that I've... I mean, and that's where Jesus is taking this. He's kind of doing heart surgery. Because he knows the Pharisees are hearing him and he knows the Pharisees really only focus on outside behavior. And Jesus is saying, I haven't come to change your behavior. I've come to change your heart. I've come to do things inside of you because if I can get you to believe right here, your behavior will change. But all the Pharisees cared about was the behavior. All the Pharisees cared about was the outside. And so the way that I hunger and thirst for righteousness is I want to be right before God. I don't want to have any secrets. I don't want to have anything that hasn't been brought to the light. I don't want, because here's the thing about God. You can't tell him anything he doesn't already know. Like there hasn't been one time where you're going to go, hey, God, man, I messed this up. I'm sorry. And he's just going to, seriously? Boy, I was playing tic-tac-toe while you were doing that. I didn't see that. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like you're not going to bring anything to God that he hasn't, isn't supremely aware of already. And so when we bring these things to God, it's, it's, it's saying, Lord, I want to be, I want to have things right here, vertically. And then I think the second aspect that naturally comes when we come to God and we say, you know what, I've tried things on my own, Lord, I want to try it your way, is he's going to make things right within us and with the people around us. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it's practical ways to deal with conflict, to deal with everyday things that we're all going to face. How do I make things right? Now that I've made things right with God, I've come to God, I've, I've asked for forgiveness, then he's going to start working on the inside of us. Because I think the greatest betrayal in life is when we betray our own self and who God has called us to be. 
And I don't have a lot of time to go into that, but think about, think about Jonah. Think about having that, that. Jonah had this massive call on his life. God said, hey, you need to go to Nineveh. You need to tell these folks that I'm bringing destruction if they don't turn. And what did Jonah do? He betrayed himself first. He knew God was calling him to do this, but he said, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go to Tarsus. I'm going to go the other way. And how much conflict, I'm just, I'm preaching to the choir today. How much pain and just anxiety I've caused in my own life by betraying what I know God's called me to do because this way is easier. This way is more comfortable. I'm good at this job. I don't want to do this, Lord. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to, what do you, what, no. Because when we come to God and we make things right with God, he's going to speak something to us. He's going to tell us to do something. He's not going to tell us to sing Kumbaya until he comes back, right? I mean, he's, he's going to give us something to do. And, it, and it's going to start with our purpose and finding out what that is. And then the second piece is, is the next beatitude. It's going to be making things right with the people around us. And so it's right standing with God and it's right standing with ourselves and with others. And so how in the world do we do that? It's very difficult. <laughs> and I think Jesus did that on purpose when he explained that our righteousness has to be greater than the Pharisees because they made it their job to be righteous. Like, it, it would be almost impossible to, to, like, exceed their righteousness. And I think that's exactly what he was doing. It is impossible in our own strength to live a righteous and holy life without God's help. And so we don't come to church to be reminded of how righteous we are. We come to church to be reminded of the righteous king that we serve. And it's all we got. <laughs> we, can't, we can't trust in our own works and we can't trust in our own life because I'm sure if we started unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, there's something somewhere that you've done to someone where you have violated one of those things. It's so hard to live that way. And so what Jesus is doing is he's pointing them towards their need for him. I love the way that this scripture says it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who knew no sin. He was perfect, Jesus. To what? Be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And that's the good news. Now I want to end with a story. So Jesus is with his disciples and he's heading to Jerusalem and he tells his disciples, hey, I've got to go through Samaria. I've got to go on this side route. I need to see someone. And he sends his disciples on to get food. Then Jesus ends up at a well at about 12 o'clock in the middle of the day. Now just put it in like context the people that went to the well at 12 o'clock in the heat in the middle of the day were the ones who wanted to go when nobody else was there because they were either ashamed or they didn't want to be seen and, and so and, and this was a we know the story we don't even know the woman's name we know we have Jesus we have a well and we have what's known as a Samaritan woman and I want you to take note in this because Jesus went out of his way to make sure that he had time to spend with this woman and he's sitting at the well and they're talking and he says hey give, give me a drink and it shocks her because in that day a Samaritan and a Jew would not even speak 
So they were, they were in such different categories culturally, they didn't speak at all. Samaritans were known as half-breeds. They were looked down upon by the Jewish people. And the fact that Jesus is even talking to her probably has her thinking maybe he wants more than just a drink. He did, she didn't know. So he, he asked her for a drink, and then he says, you know, if you ask me, I'll give you a drink of water, and if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. And he asked a question, he says, won't you go and um, get your husband, bring him back, and uh, let's talk. She says, I don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus begins speaking into her life. He's like, I know, you've had five, and the one that you're living with now is not your husband. So she's like, wow, okay, you're a prophet. <laughs> like, I, I, I perceive you're a prophet. And so now the, the conversation gets spiritual. But the story, I, what I love about this story is, first off, it made it in the Bible and the disciples weren't there. So this story was so important to Jesus that he made sure he told it in detail to his disciples so that it would get in this book. They were buying food. They didn't want to go through Samaria. So this is an important story. But the second thing is that this woman didn't feel worthy of the care that Jesus was offering her. She'd been looked down upon. She had disqualified herself. And she'd been drinking from wells that left her coming back for more and more and more over and over and over her whole life. And Jesus named her well. And I think we all have it. We all have something in our life that will present itself. It, well, if I just get that, then I'll be satisfied. If I could just settle down, if I, if I could just do that, and we can fill in the blank over and over and over. But I want you to see what Jesus said to this woman. He says, listen, she kept giving him excuses. Well, when, when the Messiah comes, then I can get my life right. Or, well, you know, I can't worship because I got to go to the temple to worship. I'm not allowed to worship there. And Jesus stops her and says, you I'm going to read it to you. John chapter 4, verse 26. You don't have to wait any longer. And you don't have to look any further. I think that's a promise for somebody today. That maybe you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Or drinking out of wells that leave you feeling empty and depressed and discouraged. Thinking, well, if I can just get this. And it looks so good. And then, and then what happens is we get it and we find out that it's not what we thought it was going to be. We come back to the well that won't run dry. And I want you to just bow your head for a moment. I want to pray this morning. Father, we just thank you so much that you do satisfy And you've given us a promise that if we hunger and thirst for you, that we'll be filled. That every longing in our heart, we may go through bad situations, we may go through bad seasons. Our, our life may stay the, the same, but we can have this inward happiness, this beautiful attitude when life is up and when life is down. Because we're tethered to another world. And so, Lord, we thank you so much that we can come to you and we can put on this righteousness that's not of ourselves. 
like a coat. We can put this righteousness on that you purchased for us so that we can stand before God with a clean conscience. We can make things right within ourselves and with the people around us because you give us the power to do it. We thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen.